Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 10, 1 Samuel, chapter 7. Now, indulge me, please, as I begin today's lesson with a brief personal sermon that I think is pertinent in connecting our study of 1 Samuel with conditions that are present in our time. Because afterwards, this is going to get personal for you. And if you're paying attention today, before all is said and done, this may just turn out to be one of the more difficult lessons to deal with. The kind that might just keep you awake tonight, worried or sad or maybe a little bit mad at me. Now, it tickles me to no end when someone approaches me, as a couple of folks did this past week, and says that the light bulb finally came on in their heads, and now they can readily see as obvious that without understanding the cultures and societies and rituals of the people of the Bible in the setting of their own ancient terms, the Bible is nearly unintelligible despite what we thought we knew. Now, due to the Christian church's historic propensity to practically demonize the Old Testament and to view the history of Israel as largely irrelevant since, in the eyes of many theologians, God has rejected Israel and replaced it with the church in his redemptive plan, then it goes without saying that to give the older covenant, the opening books of the Bible, more than a maybe a good skim reading is anywhere from a waste of time to possibly even heresy if one gives it too much credence. Now hopefully all of you who follow Torah class see by now that what those two folks whom I just spoke of came to see, you see that the situation is quite the opposite. The Bible is a challenging work to decipher and to apply to our lives. And far too often it is misunderstood and thus its principles are misapplied or maybe even just dismissed. This happens because rather than do the difficult digging that's necessary to peel back the layers to get down to its molten core, many believers have, without knowing it, turned to, a, to scripture translations and studies that were formulated to reduce it to a junior high school level of reading and vocabulary proficiency, thus promoting a junior high school level of understanding. Now, anyone who has ever dealt with a junior high schooler knows that while eager 13-year-old minds do by now have some notion of life's realities and principles, their depth and breadth of understanding, bless their little hearts, is woefully incomplete and full of gaping holes. The problem is 
that generally they are quite sure they have all the facts they need. And so they are supremely confident that any further information is superfluous and just a big waste of their time. So offers of additional input are met with disinterest, usually accompanied with looks of, what do I need that stuff for? It's boring. Thus, while they seek maximum independence, in reality they need a lot of shepherding. Carefully limited freedoms in making significant decisions because the results of those decisions can represent a long-term danger that they just don't currently have the capacity to discern. And their inability to discern is due to a lack of maturity and knowledge that's far more limited than they think it is. Now to approach the Bible with that same kind of immature naivety, as though the intent of its incomparable words can be comprehended without reading it from the beginning to create a foundation, or reading it as though the historical, biblical settings and languages and ways and customs of the people who lived thousands of years ago are little more than optional footnotes is more than error, it's dangerous for a seeker of God. Our Christian faith has been compromised from one end to the other with theological philosophies and agendas brought about by men who think, as junior high schoolers think, that by reading only a portion of the Bible quickly or by skipping the entire first 60%, and then reading only the New Testament Gospels or perhaps some of Paul's epistles or by standing on the carefully crafted faith doctrines of one of the literally thousands of Christian denominations, they have all the information they need to make sound decisions about both their spiritual and earthly lives and especially decisions about their relationship with the Lord. To open themselves to the actual and full Word of God, starting with His first words, is often considered to be too hard and unnecessary. And it will only confuse the well-established set of doctrines and traditions that they and their flocks are certain are right, and by definition all else must be wrong. If I've heard the words once, I've heard them a hundred times. I don't know what the Bible says, but I know what I believe. Okay, Listen to the writer of the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, that speaks about what happens when a believer refuses to advance beyond the basic understandings of God and faith, but thinks that somehow this basic understanding is sufficient. This is from Hebrews 5.11. It says, We have much to say about this subject, but it's hard to explain, because you've become sluggish in your understanding. For although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone 
to teach you the very first principles of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who has to drink milk is still a baby without experiencing the, uh, uh, in applying the Word about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by continuous exercise to distinguish good from evil. This situation that was the problem in Paul's day remains a problem in our day. And it's the same sort of situation that we're reading about in 1 Samuel. It is this disinterest this naive maturity, immaturity, this, this failure to strive for continuous exercise to distinguish good from evil. That is the mindset of the Israelites of Samuel's era at the time when their precious Ark of the Covenant was first captured and then returned to them after seven months in the hands of the Philistines. The Torah was now 400 years old. The 40-year wilderness journey was ancient history for these folks. Just as the pilgrims' migration from Europe to the new frontier of America is ancient history for us. Apparently, the priests and the Levites no longer gave much thought to those days of old or to the ancient law of Moses given on Mount Sinai. The Torah and the Exodus were the things of the past. Irrelevant as far as they were concerned. And they were quite satisfied to believe whatever it is they believed. You know, who among us today reads the documents and writings from the Pilgrim era or studies books penned only a few decades later, telling of the deprivation and of the heroic efforts of these believers to survive and to start a colony in a place of freedom where they were no longer literally coerced into public observance of state-mandated religious traditions and customs. Part of the reason that we don't go back and look at these writings is because even though the language of the pilgrims was English, the spelling and the way the alphabet was, characters were formed, the sentence structure, even the somewhat peculiar words of those writings make studying them tedious and even frustrating. We're forced to untangle and go through the trouble to figure out what those words meant to them in the 1600s. Because we, we certainly don't claim that we can directly apply the experiences of their culture and society to 21st century America. So why do most mainstream believers think we can merely lift these Bible characters and scripture writers out of their day and time and set them down into our living rooms clothe them in Levi's and Nikes hand them a ham and cheese quiche and somehow 
This is all that's needed to harmonize their ancient Middle Eastern Hebrew culture and their thoughts with our 21st century Western English-based culture and thoughts. For those among us today that don't care for American history or see any relevance to knowing about our pilgrim faith forefathers or wish to put the effort to discover it, our ill-formed conclusions may at times put us on the wrong side of truth and, and reality. On the other hand, such mistaken beliefs are, will, will generally have a little effect on our everyday lives. But when it comes to dealing with the Word of God, it's an entirely different matter. For the people of Beit Shemesh, the residents of that Israelite border town, where the tumor-ridden Philistines sent that cart with the Ark of God aboard, much to their shock, it turned out that their willful, willful ignorance of their cavalier attitude towards the Torah proved to be fatal. We ended last time as the Ark arrived at Bet Shemesh, a, a, a Levite village. There, there, when it arrived, the joyful residents grabbed that Ark, they set it up on a prominent rock, they lit a fire, and as a sacrifice, burned up the two cows that brought that Ark to them. They celebrated and they shouted praises to the Lord. And the response was God, from God was, He struck seventy of them dead. It was a simple matter, actually. These Levites touched what was especially holy. And it wasn't to be touched. And they looked upon what was especially holy. It wasn't to be looked upon. But wouldn't you know that these people must not have ever read that Numbers scroll or they would have known. It seems that they just didn't read it. Or just as likely they must have thought that time had just eroded its relevance. Only a specific clan of Levites and certain designated priests could handle the ark or even lay eyes on it. And at least 70 who weren't of the proper God-authorized Levite families paid no heed. And they went ahead with all of their celebrating as though somehow God's laws just didn't apply to them or the situation and it cost them their lives. Did they not know the law on this matter? I can't be 100% for sure, but I'd say probably not. Now we've learned that since before the time of the very first Shophet, the first judge of Israel, Niel, the Levitical priesthood was becoming careless and, and self-serving and corrupt. They were setting aside the purity of God's ordained ways for ones that they kind of invented and preferred. And somehow, they must have expected the Lord to, to just accept their ways over His. They mixed a little bit of 
Yehovah worship with the laws of Moses, added some of their comfortable old Egyptian practices, and then a little Canaanite religion to make their neighbors feel real good about them. And then the Hebrews felt just swell. I mean, they just felt very righteous about it all. The further we moved into the book of Judges, the less flattering picture was painted of that Israelite priesthood until we reached this point in 1 Samuel when for all practical purposes the priesthood didn't even function anymore. Samuel, who seems to have come from a Levite but not a priestly family line, was now the highest religious authority in Israel. By the ordinance of the ordinances of the law, he shouldn't have been awarded such a position. Eli, the high priest, Samuel's master, was now dead. And we don't hear anything about his replacement in these passages. There is no mention of a tabernacle or an official location of the altar of burnt offering to where all Israelites should come to sacrifice and bring their offerings. The few surviving Levites at Beit Shemesh didn't really understand why God killed their Levite brothers. Nor exactly what they ought to do now with that ark. But they now understood it was dangerous. In fact, in light of what just befell them, they asked rhetorically, and we read this in the passages, well, who then is authorized to attend the ark? They didn't know. And yet, they're supposed to be Israel's spiritual advisors. They're supposed to be Israel's religious experts. Why didn't they know? Because they didn't bother to inquire about God's Word. And instead, they substituted man-made rituals and rules and principles along with good intentions that seemed lovely and right to their own minds. That's fine for pagans. But it's a disaster for God's redeemed of any age or era, and especially for those designated as His priests. Apparently at the confluence of of the territorial boundaries of Judah and Dan and Benjamin, there was this remote hilltop village that was an ancient and known cult site where some Levite priests now live. Very possibly they were, at least some of them were refugees from Shiloh. And in response to a desperate message sent by the residents of Beit Shemesh, some of the priests of Kiryat Yarim came down to rescue the ark from the people of Beit Shemesh. And appears that kind of rescued the people from the ark as well. A priest named Avinadav appointed his son, Eleazar, to be the Ark's attendant. And the Ark of the Covenant would now rest inside some type of tent or room in this hilltop village of Levite priests, Kiryat Yarim, more or less indefinitely. Indefinitely, it turns out, would be until King David's time. Let's... uh, Reread Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 7. <clears throat> 
That's page uh, 304 in the complete Jewish Bible. Some of the men of Kiryat Yarim came and brought back the Ark of Adonai, and they took it to the home of Advinadav on the hill and appointed his son Eleazar to guard the Ark of Adonai. And from the day that the ark arrived in Kiryat Yarim, a long time elapsed, 20 years. And all the people of Israel yearned for Adonai. Now Shmuel, Samuel, addressed all the people of Israel and he said, If you are returning to Adonai with all your heart, then be done with the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth and, and that you have with you and direct your hearts to Adonai, if you will serve only him he will rescue from the power of the Philistines. So the people of Israel banished the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served only Adonai. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mitzpah, and I will pray for you to Adonai. So they gathered together at Mitzpah. They drew water, poured it out before Adonai, fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against Adonai. And Samuel began serving as judge over the people of Israel at Mitzpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered together at Mitzpah, the leaders of the Philistines marched up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard about this, they were afraid of the Philistines. The people of Israel said to Samuel, Don't stop crying out to Adonai our God for us. Save us from the power of the Philistines. Samuel took a baby lamb and he offered it as a whole burnt offering to Adonai. And then Samuel cried to Adonai for Israel and Adonai answered him. And as Samuel was presenting the burnt offering, the Philistines advanced to attack Israel. But this time, Adonai thundered violently over the Philistines, throwing them into such confusion that they were struck down before Israel. The men of Israel went out from Mitzpah, pursued the Philistines, attacking them all the way to Bet Car. Samuel took a stone and he placed it between Mitzpah and Shane and gave it the name Eben Azer, explaining, Adonai has helped us until now. Thus the Philistines were humbled so that they no longer entered Israel's territory. And the hand of Adonai was against the Philistines as long as Samuel lived. The cities between Ekron and Gath, where the, uh, which the Philistines had captured from Israel, were restored to Israel. And Israel rescued all this territory from the power of the Philistines. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued in office as judge of Israel as long as he lived. Year by year he would travel in a circuit that included Bethel and Gilgal and Mitzpah. And in all of these places he served as a judge over Israel. Then he would return to Ramah, because that's where his home was. And he would judge Israel there too. He also built an altar there to Adonai. We immediately learn that 20 years passed from when the Ark of the Covenant was returned to Kiryat Yarim and this now this call of Samuel in verse 3 for all of Israel to return to God and leave behind their apostate ways. Now Shiloh, which was the designated worship center for the 12 tribes since shortly after Joshua's uh, army crossed the Jordan, Shiloh has become irrelevant. No mention is made of whether the tabernacle was even used any longer. It's 
likely that it was destroyed and abandoned. So what's being used as God's dwelling place on earth? What's housing the Ark of the Covenant? Where are the menorah, the altar of incense, the table of showbread? There is later mention that at the time of King Saul, there were priests in some sort of sanctuary at a place called Nob. Okay, But what exactly was there is very hard to tell. It's highly improbable that the tabernacle got moved from Shiloh to Nob because the tabernacle had been built onto and modified and repaired so many times since its inception over 400 years earlier. Besides, whatever passed for the tabernacle uh, at, at Shiloh by the time of Samuel wouldn't have contained much, if any, of the original fabrics and wood. So whatever was constructed at Nob would have been new. And then we learn this bit of information later on now in the second book of Samuel. Second book of Samuel 6.3 they, they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Aminadav on the hill with Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of, of uh, Aminadav, driving the new cart. It's obvious that the hill that's being spoken of here is Kiryat Yarim. And so it seems as though the ark was actually kept in a room at the family home of Avinadav until King David confiscated it. And if that's the case, then it must be that the other furnishings of the tabernacle had been sent someplace else. Probably at least some of them located at Nob because for a short time it actually became known as the priestly city and David we'll read much later, went there to consult with the high priest. It's kind of odd, though, that if Nob had been the universally recognized holy place for Israel, that the key element of the Hebrew sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant, was kept someplace else. What in the world was the high priest of Israel doing presiding over a so-called sanctuary that was absent the Ark of God? The point is that until David became king and then sent for the Ark and established a whole new sanctuary in Jerusalem, several decades passed where some kind of contrived system of Hebrew holy sites and sanctuaries and altar locations existed as the twelve tribes couldn't agree on much of anything. All right, and the Levites seemed to have little to no power to force their will upon the tribes. So the law of Moses existed in name only for Israel. Now let's back up one verse to verse 2. There are complete Jewish Bible says the people of Israel yearned for Adonai. Many of your versions will say that the people of Israel lamented or they mourned for God. And that is a decidedly poor translation. Okay. The Hebrew phrase is Naha Ahare. And the sense of it is that the people were inwardly feeling that Yehovah wasn't with them. That there was a break definite break 
and their relationship. And that Israel's religious system had become empty and spiritless. And so they, they were developing this deep desire for God. The key word is feeling and emotion. Samuel was well aware of the trend of the Israelites towards wanting to recover that which was missing. But they didn't really seem to know how to get there from here. So Samuel addressed Israel as a whole congregation and said that the next step, since they were desiring God on an emotional level, was to do away with those foreign gods that had become part of their everyday lives and serve Yehovah alone. Now I could spend the entire rest of our time talking about this passage and not feel a bit of guilt over it. I'm not going to do it. But I can't let this pass without commenting at some length. Over a period of years, the people of Israel were beginning to feel the distance between them and God. They could inwardly sense that they were isolated in some way from Yehovah. I doubt they could have even put it into words. And they apparently didn't know how to move this situation beyond a sense of, of longing, of mere emotion. But Samuel, God's prophet, said that if, if they really wanted to repair the relationship with their God, then two things were of immediate importance. They had to take physical action and they had to take mental action. Now, take out a pen or a pencil and in verse 3 where it says, If with all your heart, cross out heart and put in mind. Most of you know already, but for those of you who are maybe new to Torah class, that in ancient times, the entire Bible era, Old and New Testaments, The heart was thought to be the center of conscious thought. The heart was more or less seen then as how we today think of the brain. But due to the later Greek and Roman influences, the heart, in Western culture at least, came to become a metaphorical association with feelings and emotions. In the Bible... In the Bible, the heart has nothing to do with emotions. It means mind. So what we see is that the people of Israel were Naha Ahare, having an emotional desire for God and all the shalom that such a relationship would bring with it. But Samuel was telling them that in order to achieve that which they felt... They had to move beyond only the emotion of it, and they had to set their minds, their wills, towards the goal. But even this still involved only passive intent. What was critical was to set their emotions and their wills into action. And the action was to physically remove 
the foreign god idols and pagan sanctuaries from their midst and have only worship centers that dealt with Jehovah. Folks, our messianic synagogues and our churches especially tend to have a large portion of permanent seekers as, as their congregations. People who always feel the need for God but do not have the will, their minds have not been set, to move forward towards God and make a firm commitment. And even more, they will not take the physical action of changing elements of their earthly lives that by definition are roadblocks to harmony with God. They won't leave that adulterous relationship. They won't stop cheating people, stealing from people, or take serious steps to remove themselves from the drug or alcohol culture. They will not dedicate time and energy to learn God's word, or fellowship with his people and be mentored, or serve in a ministry. They will not give up harmful things in their lives that are completely incompatible with the things of God, like sleeping around, or homosexuality, or absolute, absolute immersion in the love of money and wealth and power. Told you would be mad at me. Emotions are part of who we are. God created emotions. Emotions are valid. They are necessary. But emotions, my friends, are the lowest, not the highest level of our relationship with the Lord. From low to high, the least earthly expression of our love of God is emotion. The next up the scale is intellectual commitment, a commitment of our will. But the highest earthly expression is to act and do the word of God. The highest expression is to live out the word of God. So, to live out the word of God is the goal, not to feel it. Of course it goes without saying that none of this is possible without the Lord filling us with faith and then a spiritual change occurs. But from a tangible point of view, the hierarchy of commitment that I just laid out for you is true. And it is the one that Samuel is speaking of here in chapter 7. But notice something else as well that plagues Every one of us who call on His holy name. Something that is subtle, yet vexing, and it plays an enormous role in our lives. It's that the issues that the Israelites and that Samuel were dealing with, follow me on this, it was not that they had stopped believing in Jehovah, the God of Israel, even in their darkest times. They had not renounced Moses and the law. They didn't deny the holiness and righteousness of the Lord. Rather, what they did was to allow impurity to creep in. They allowed things of the world 
to pollute their relationship with the Creator and, and to twist it until the proverbial, uh, until it was just like the proverbial frog in the kettle. That's why I call it the believer in the kettle. They were almost dead in the Lord. But it happened so subtly that it was almost unnoticeable. You know, how we ask today, can these weak, wicked Hebrews not notice that it's wrong to mix the paganism of having Baal and Ashtoreth idols in their homes? And observing some of these pagan holidays, even if they went by Hebrew names. And that if they compared the law of Moses with how they were actually living their lives, it was at opposite ends of the pole. But we ask that question with blindfolds firmly affixed to our own eyes. Plugs stuffed in our ears. And ready rationalizations to explain away our paganizing of Christianity that would have made any of those ancient Hebrews green with envy. Every time I get on this subject and use some well-known examples, I immediately get people rushing up to the podium explaining that while indeed they understand that what they do might seem pagan, or possibly it even had pagan beginnings, they do it in God's name. Or they don't actually worship this or that. It's just a symbol. And besides, non-believers are always asking them about it, so it gives them a means to create a relationship. Ouch. Or that it's just for fun. And, and you're able to separate it from actual religious observance. You know, what's so ironic is that I don't even have to give you... I haven't given you one. And I don't have to give you even one illustration or example because each and every one of you know what I'm talking about. And you've got at least one or two of those running around in your mind right now. Because it's your favorite. And you're not about to give it up. Well then, maybe you better than anybody ought to be able to understand and sympathize with these Israelites that Samuel's speaking to. Because it's precisely the same situation and they always precisely employed your argument. Problem is, God didn't buy it. And He's still not buying it. Again, remember, these people who were eventually exiled from the land primarily for their idolatry had not renounced God. They hadn't given up worship of Him. Rather, they merely added fun or useful elements of a pagan system to God's pure and holy system. So don't even think that idolatry and Christianity are mutually exclusive. That somehow if your heart is towards God, that anything you might do or your intent is to honor Him or just to have fun or to be in tune with your neighbors and the rest of your family, that it couldn't possibly be wrong or idolatry. Because in reality, it almost certainly is. And you know it. Which is why you defend it so vigorously.
Now another element of this story for us to notice is that the God pattern of living in harmony with God and then apostasy and then oppression and then repentance and finally deliverance is again at play. And as we pick up in chapter 7, the Israelites were in the repentant stage of this particular cycle. And they finally determined with their emotions, their minds, and now their actions to banish idolatry from their lives and serve only God. Now that the people were living and behaving more like God's people ought to, Samuel ordered that all Israel was to come together at a place called Mitzpah, which means watchtower. And there they performed some symbolic ceremonies and made a communal and public expression of confession before Jehovah. It was here, at this moment, that Samuel's career as a shofet, a judge of Israel, was seen as commencing. Now it's interesting that Samuel said that at Mitzpah he'd pray for the people. See, Samuel was acting as a sort of mediator or high priest, although officially he was neither. Officially, he was a prophet. However, a prophet was God's tool on earth. And they were often a jack-of-all-trades. None, though, were ever given the vast range of duties as was Samuel. Very unique man. This is why Bible scholars sometimes have a hard time settling on a label for Samuel. Some will include him in the list of judges of Israel. Others won't because he was so much more than a judge and because he operated on a nationwide basis rather than just regional or perhaps on behalf of a single tribe, which was more the norm for a shofet. Now, in verse 6... We find a ceremony performed that has tantalized and confused scholars for centuries. It says that water was drawn and poured out on the ground before Jehovah. And in concert with that, the people fasted and made a public confession of sin. Now the issue is, was this some specially concocted ceremony probably designed by Samuel or was this something more familiar to them it is most typical and I think many of your Bibles will contain comments or footnotes to this effect that explain that drawing up water and pouring it out into the ground is symbolic of emptying one's soul of guilt and ridding oneself of it in other words repentance And while there is undoubtedly repentance going on here, for me, there's another solution that's more obvious. Another intriguing question is, what was the purpose of calling the whole congregation of God to Mitzpah? I mean, this is a huge deal. This is no small thing to ask people to leave their homes and fields and flocks and and, and for some to journey several days to gather together. Such an occasion was was very unusual. 
The typical answer comes from what happens next. That is, the Philistines come to do battle. So the usual solution is that Samuel was calling the warriors of Israel together to gather for, for battle. And at the same time to properly seek God before that first arrow was shot in anger. I'm in the minority, but I disagree with this assessment because there's a much more logical solution that fits the context. Three times per year, according to the law, there were to be God-ordained gatherings of the Israelites to one place. The gatherings of the feasts of unleavened bread, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Of course, there are four more biblical feasts, but these were not pilgrimage feasts. Of the seven of them, only one made a water libation ceremony as its centerpiece. The Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. Sukkot was a fall feast. Actually, it was the last of three fall feasts, including Yom Kippur, Yom Teruah, and Sukkot. These were held within a 15-day time span of each other. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was especially an especially somber festival day, and it often involved prayer and fasting and confession. When we read of Israel being called to mitzpah and of a water libation ceremony, fasting, prayer, and confession, I cannot imagine that this was anything else but the Israelites celebrating the three fall feasts in some fashion or another. Further, since Shiloh was now defunct, there was no single established holy place for Israel to make pilgrimage for any of these feasts in order to be obedient to God's Torah. Mitzpah was the next most logical choice. Mitzpah was long recognized. It was a long recognized place for Israel to gather for religious reasons. We find it used back in Judges 20 and 21, hundreds of years earlier. And it was for that purpose of being a meeting place for a holy convocation of Israel. In a few more chapters, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, it's going to happen again. Many centuries later, we're told in 1 Maccabees, all right, that it was considered as a traditional, though not official, gathering place for special holy convocations Convocations for God's people. Thus in verse 7, when we read that the Philistines heard about this grand gathering in Mitzpah, they reacted by mustering their powerful army to march against Israel. Okay? And in verse 8, when the Israelites heard that the Philistines were coming, it says they were afraid. Now again, this hardly fits a scenario whereby the Israelites at Samuel's behest were gathered together at Mitzvah for the express purpose of going to war against the Philistines. No, they were at Mitzvah to celebrate the fall festivals, not to fight. The Philistines, who still felt that they lorded over the Israelites, saw this gathering there as an unlawful and threatening assembly that was in direct affront to their authority and they weren't about to let it go by. Samuel offered a young lamb to the Lord as a plea for his help to ward off the Philistines. And while Israel was praying and sacrificing, the Philistines crossed over into Israelite territory. But the battle the Philistines sought and that the Israelites feared never took place. 
Instead, we're told in verse 10 that the Lord God thundered over the Philistines, put them into a panic, and they ran for their lives. The Lord thundering carries with it several aspects, and so it leaves some scholars scratching their heads and wondering just how literally or figuratively uh, this happened, this thundering. The Lord thundering in heaven usually precedes His acting in wrath on earth. Thus, when we read of thunder in heaven or the Lord thundering, it's a symbolic imagery of the Lord expressing His anger in heaven and somebody better watch out below. Here it is likely that His thundering was not only in heaven but also in the heavens, the sky. In other words, it could have been the scariest noise imaginable. Something like thunder. That sent these battle-hardened Philistines running off in a panic. But the panic was also supernatural in nature. And and, and we see this, this, this exact thing occasionally happen in the Bible where the Lord just supernaturally panics an enemy. Sometimes there's a physical phenomenon that has supernaturally happened that causes this panic. But at other times, it is that the Lord just instills this unexplained and overwhelming feel of terror within an enemy. And that they just cower or flee in horror, virtually unable to control themselves. Some combination of these two seems to be happening here. The men of Israel chase down these now disorganized companies of Philistine soldiers who were paralyzed with fear and they slew them. The Lord balances things out in His time and His way at essentially the same place that some years earlier the Israelites were slaughtered in battle and lost the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines. Now Israel was victorious. And the Philistines suffered a terrible and long-lasting defeat. The first time Israel gathered for battle and only later decided to get the Lord to side with them. He didn't. This time, they gathered for prayer and repentance and peace. And the Lord went ahead of them and annihilated the enemy. And all Israel had to do was mop up. I think there's a lesson in there, don't you? We'll continue with chapter 7 next week.